invite you to take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 17. Acts 17 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. Uh, We're going to look, I'm going to read, we're going to begin by reading the first 15 verses of Acts 17. So we'll look at this passage of scripture. You'll find the book of Acts, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts, and then Romans. Um, So if you're in Romans, go left, or Corinthians, go left. In the Gospels, go right. Acts 17, and I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Acts 17, 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd. But when they did not find him, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogues. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Paul and Silas uh, Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who had escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So this is the scripture that we're going to consider together today. And before we move forward, I'm going to say, Steve, I feel like I'm really loud. I'm not sure if I'm in the monitors or what, but I I can barely listen to myself. It's so bad. And I love to listen to myself. Uh, When he resigned as uh, George Bush's uh, Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld was one of the most despised men in the country. You remember Donald Rumsfeld, of course. Uh, He left at the low point of the Iraq war, and many people blamed his leadership and his decisions for the way that the war was going. He was not popular, except uh, he was well-known because his press briefings were so colorful. (laughs) Donald Rumsfeld said some uh, amazing, blunt, sometimes funny things. One of the things he's most well-known for is his great classification of knowledge. Remember this? In the press conference when he said there are things as 
such as known knowns, unknown knowns, known unknowns, and unknown knowns. Do you remember that? There are things you know you know, the known knowns. There are things you, you don't know, the unknown. Th there are things you don't know that you know you don't know, the unknown knowns. There are things you don't know that you don't know, the unknown unknowns. And then there are the things that you think you know, but you're wrong. You don't really know them. Those are the unknown knowns. This is very helpful. The next time your child asks you a question that you don't know the answer to, you say, that, my friend, is an unknown known. And while they're thinking about what that is, you have time to look it up on your phone and find out the answer. <laughs> that, there was a town hall meeting that he had on December 8th, 2004, one of his low points. He was in Kuwait. He was um, at this town hall meeting with uh, soldiers. And during the question and answer time, Thomas Wilson, who's a specialist in the Tennessee Air National Guard, um, stood and asked this question. He said, why, why are we digging scrap metal and compromised ballistic glass? Why are we digging that out of dumps and, and bolting it to our vehicles? Why is that the way that we have to protect ourselves? Why don't we have the armored vehicles that we need? Well, uh, Donald Rumsfeld did not handle that question very well. He hemmed and hawed for a little bit. He asked for it to be repeated three times. The man had to ask the question. And finally, he said to them, as you know, you go to the war with the army you have, not the army you might want or wish to have at a later time. Remember when he said that? You go to war with the army you have, not the army you might want. And what followed was a lot of anger and a lot of commentary and discussions about the equipment that the armed forces have and why they didn't have sufficient vehicles and sufficient armoring and why it was taking so long to get them to them. I want to think with you for a minute this morning about that phrase, you go to war with the army you have, and ponder how it applies to the mission that Jesus has given us. He sent us out to testify about him, to represent him in the world. Our congregation has roots in what we've been talking about. We haven't thought about this very much. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when the Lord Jesus said to the disciples, Go and be my witnesses around the world to the ends of the earth, our church was in view there. You can trace our congregation back at least 41 years to Grace Baptist Church of Lancaster. And then you can trace it back even further from Grace Baptist Church of Lancaster back and back and back and back, eventually to this, this book of Acts. There is someone who heard the gospel in the book of Acts who shared it with someone who shared it with someone who shared it with someone who eventually led to our own church. And here we are. We have this responsibility ourselves. We're an outpost of this mission that Jesus gave, and we're looking over the horizon. Where is the gospel not? Where was the gospel, but it's no longer there? What's, where are the places where people need to hear about Jesus? That's, that's what we think. It's in our DNA as a church. It's a mission that the Bible sometimes describes in terms of warfare, doesn't it? Look at what Paul wrote. I wrote it on your note sheet. I think it's in your bulletin. It's purple there. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5. Look at what it says. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. 
so what are these weapons that he's talking about, the weapons of our warfare, that are not the world's weapons, but there are weapons? Well, he must have in mind, I would think, at least the Holy Spirit, right? You will receive power, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. I think uh, Paul has that in mind in 1 Thessalonians 2.2. 2. Remember, we just read about his ministry in Thessalonica. Here's the letter that he wrote to them. Look what he said to them. He, it, it builds on what we learned last week about Philippi. 1 Thessalonians 2.2. 2. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. With the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. The Holy Spirit. What else? What other weapons do we have? Well, if you read the book of Acts, there's certainly prayer, right? Church prays all the time in every chapter over, over things that happen to them. Then there's partnership with one another. How do we wage war? Together. Uh, Jesus puts this team together. There's team ministry in the, in the book of Acts. But the weapon here in Acts 17 that Paul uses most effectively is the Bible itself. I wonder if you saw that, the role that it plays in this text. This is how Christians enter the fray. This is what informs us, what guides us, what corrects us, what shapes us. The scriptures, in fact, this is what you should expect from us. You should not expect from us impressive choreography, <laughs> not uh, catchy video montages, not trendy self-help programs, not manipulative emotional appeals. You should expect, though, from us the Bible, as clear as we can make it, the scriptures. It is the weapon. It is divinely powerful, this book. This is our subject for today. It's what we're going to talk about uh, from First Thessalonians, uh, excuse me, from Acts 17. Before we do that, though, I wanted to just mention one of the other themes that's here in Acts 17 that's actually all the way through this passage of Scripture. Um, this is, uh, so the Bible is one of the themes in this, these verses. The other that's so important here is this concept of reception and opposition. Everywhere Paul went, in every chapter in the story of the book of Acts here, Paul and his co-workers either encounter men and women who receive their message gladly and become followers of Jesus, or they are opposed, sometimes violently, sometimes viciously. Uh, ben Witherington said that in the, the uh, second missionary journey, which we're in in the book of Acts, here there are two times that Paul is opposed by Jews, in one of these passages, two times that he is opposed by Gentiles, that was last week, wasn't it, in Philippi? Two times those accusations that are leveled against Paul are acted on. He's beaten and imprisoned. And two times those accusations are dismissed. Um, reception and opposition. Luke tells us, too, within this theme, and we'll see this. I'm not sure how much I'll point out as we go along. But uh, as Paul, uh, Luke, rather, in his writing, lets us in on the mixed motives of Paul's opponents, why were the Jews upset here? Uh, they claimed to be concerned about Caesar's decrees, but really verse 5 tells us that they were jealous. Kind of like last week, remember Acts 16, uh, the, the people in the city of Philippi were concerned. They claimed that they were concerned about Roman customs and Roman culture, but really they were concerned about their prophets, right? Actually, you can think about that word in two different ways. Paul had cast a demon out of their fortune teller, 
Uh, and so the people were worried about losing their profit and their profits. Okay. Uh, you can think about that later. Something else my mother can make fun of me for later. Uh, I, I mentioned this. It bears repeating. Um, this pattern, I think, of, of reception and opposition, this pattern gives the lie to the belief uh, that, that, that Christians or Christianity, if, that if we were nicer or if we were more gracious or if we were more united, uh, then we wouldn't receive the opposition. Have you, have you heard this? I've heard this claim. People say, um, you know, if, if we Christians would stop talking so much about abortion or stop talking so much about sex, and if we talked more about Jesus and more about social justice or poverty or our stewardship of the planet or racism, if we would talk more about those things and if we would be nicer to one another, then people would respect us and they wouldn't reject the message. Now, I'm sure that there is some truth in that, 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 that we can speak more graciously, but we can hardly accuse the Apostle Paul here in Acts 17 of just not being nice enough not talking about the right topics. Uh, Dan Ferguson made an insightful observation. I thought maybe some of you uh, read this. Uh, Dan wrote uh, uh, that um, since the Supreme Court decision striking down bans on same-sex marriage, um, he said, since that decision was made, I have read dozens of comments about how Christian believers need to be gracious and measured, but he said, I have seen virtually no examples of Christians being hateful and malicious. Acts 17, 16, 18, the story, they tell us that this is, there is going to be always a measure of animosity, no matter how nice we are or no matter how much we tiptoe around particular topics. There's always going to be opposition, and it's going to continue. And it didn't stop the Apostle Paul. He, he gets kicked out of Thessalonica, he has the same plan in Berea. He goes place to place to place, he does the same thing over and over again gets kicked out of the cities and moves on. Didn't stop him. It's not going to stop us either. Now the theme of reception and opposition is here, but uh, like I said, in these verses, the unique part is the role that the Bible plays. Let, let's review it here. Look quickly at verse 2. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Verb 1, four verbs here, they're so important. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. Verse 3, he explained and proved from the scriptures. Reasoning, explaining, proving. Look down at verse 11. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Why, Luke? Well, I'll tell you why. For they received the message with greater eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Reasoning, explaining, proving, examining. All things to do with the scriptures. Oh, they're so important in Paul's ministry. When we think about the Bible over the years, as theologians have sought to, sought to describe the Bible, four key words have kind of risen to the top as they've talked about what the Bible is and what we believe about the Bible. Let me just share those with you briefly. First of all, they speak about the Bible's authority. We believe in the authority of the Bible. Uh, our church... Uh, in our church, the Bible is the final word for us for all things having to do with life and doctrine. Part of speaking about its authority is speaking about its truthfulness, which we'll come back to in a few minutes uh, a little bit later. Now, second here, 
We believe in the authority of the Bible. Second, there's the word clarity. We believe in the clarity of the Bible. Uh, the Bible is not just a book for scholars. You can read it and you can understand it. It's a clear book. Number three, we believe in the necessity of the Bible. We believe that the Bible is necessary. We must have this book. If we are going to know God and love God, we have to have this book. You know, our church demonstrates its commitment to the necessity of the Bible in our budget. Do you know how we do that? I don't know if you've ever thought about this. But with the budget that we have, we support, we send money to people who live overseas and are working toward the translation of the Bible. Mike and Jenny Guy live in Papua New Guinea. They serve at a base that is the sending area, the, 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 the support base for people who live in Papua New Guinea and regions around who are translating the Bible. Alan Mickey Williams, uh, Al travels all over Southeast Asia telling those same translators how to be safe and secure, how to practice good security consciousness in what is the most often a dangerous part of the world. And every time that you vote to approve that budget, well, I suppose it includes Jacques Yosti, too. He's translating Bible teaching into French for broadcast from French radio stations. Whenever you, you cast a vote to approve that budget, you are saying, yes, we believe in the necessity of the Bible. We believe it's necessary for us, and we believe it's necessary for people in Papua New Guinea and people in Southeast Asia and people in France and North Africa. We believe in the necessity of the Bible. Now, third here, fourth, excuse me. The fourth word is sufficiency. We believe in the sufficiency of the Bible. We believe the Bible is enough. We believe it is a good enough weapon. We believe it is powerful and can be trusted. Jesus did not send us into a gunfight with a butter knife. Uh, and because we believe in its sufficiency, our meetings, our, our decisions, our arguments are suffused with the Bible. Now, seeing uh, this in the text this morning, if you're sitting here this morning and you're familiar with our congregation, you're perhaps attuned a little bit to the challenge that I have before me this morning. Open before us is a passage that affirms what we already believe and already practice. If you're a member of our church, um, I probably yet have not said anything that you is new or striking or that you've never heard or don't already believe, right? Some of you came to our church because of this uh, sufficiency, our confidence in the scriptures. This attitude towards the Bible was woven into this church by my predecessors. We see what Paul's doing here. It confirms every confidence that we have. Uh, several years ago, I was, it was another day that we were taking the Lord's Supper. And before we passed out the elements, I uh, read from 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, 18 talks about the fact that because we have re been redeemed by Christ, we have been set free from the feudal way of life handed down by our ancestors. It's a great little line. One of the things I talked about was because Jesus has come and died and rose again for us, that means that the pattern of life from our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, is not determinative in our lives. Not their religious practices, not their beliefs, not, not your father's alcoholism, not your grandmother's abuse, not the crazy financial mismanagement that marked your home. That's not determinative in your life because Jesus died and rose again. 
so I shared that, and then after the service, someone came up to me with a very uh, disturbed look on his face. He said to me, you have no idea. And um, I, I'm not sure exactly where that anger came from. I, maybe he was angry because I gave people the impression that following Jesus from a position of brokenness or abandonment or abuse was easy. It's not my intention at all. Maybe I gave that impression. But the charge, you have no idea, is not completely an empty charge. Fortunately, though, our church is not limited by my knowledge and by my experience, by my creativity or by my insight. If you... <laughs> If our congregation is limited by what I know and what I've seen, we all in trouble. To, to make up for all of my deficiencies, oh, that's maybe a great way to say it, surpassing all of my deficiencies, we have God's book. And trust me, he has an idea, lots of them, that are worth giving ourselves over to. It's sufficient. Now, for the time that we have, I want, do want to walk through this passage a little bit, and I want to show you from this text three reasons why the Bible is sufficient, why it is a powerful, trustworthy uh, weapon for the mission, and here they are. Number one, the Bible is true. The Bible is true. Verse 11, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. The Bible is their standard. It's the measure of what is true for them. Daryl Bach wrote this about this episode from Acts. Listen, the Christian life is an examined life where one employs the scriptures like an x-ray to ascertain the nature of religious truth, life, and one's heart. This is our filter. This is our measure. The first thing that we ask, the first thing that we think is, what does the Bible say? The Bible is true. And, and often we use the, the negative word inerrant, which means that it, it, is, it is true. It's without error in all it teaches. And it's the only inerrant word in existence. Oh, it's tempting, isn't it? Very, very tempting. To in the midst of the crisis, trust something else or someone else. If you're lying in a hospital bed, it's, it's, it's difficult to believe some of the promises that God offers. I am with you. I will not forsake you. We sang them this morning, right? When through fiery trials thy path I shall go, my grace all sufficient. Oh, that's not the right first line. Through fiery trials thy pathway shall go. Shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. We pay him. That's good. <laughs> my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. Can you can you remember that in a hospital bed? Is it easy, or is it easier to listen to your feelings? Or maybe it's your joints. It's easier to listen to your joints at that moment. When you're when you're in the midst of this relationship crisis, maybe in your marriage or in a friendship that you have, or this. Dating relationship, it's so easy, isn't it, to trust, to rely on your own feelings and not what Scripture says? It's so easy. But we believe the Bible is true. It's sufficient. It's a guide for us. It teaches us. It's a filter. It's how we know what to do in every circumstance. 
every situation. Look at some verses from Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a hymn about the Bible. Look at these three verses here from Psalm 119. 89, your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. I'm not dismayed when someone says, why do you believe a book that's so old? I say, because it's God's word and it's eternal. It never goes out of fashion. It's never outmoded. It's never surprised. Psalm 119, 96, to all perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. You remember Nadia Komenich? Remember her? She was that uh, Soviet gymnast so many years ago. She was the first person to score a perfect 10 in the Olympics. The world went wild. Woo-hoo! Perfect performance by Nadia Komenich. And the Bible is called, To all perfection I see a limit, even great gymnasts. But your commands, their perfection is limitless. There's no end to the wonders and reliability of the Bible. Psalm 119, 160, all your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. Because the Bible is true, whenever we have a question before us, whenever we have an issue for us to decide and discuss a problem that confronts us, this is our first question, what does the Bible say? The Bible is true. Now, number two here, the Bible is Christ's book. The Bible is Christ's book. By nature, the Bible is true, by its, but its sufficiency also comes from its content of its subject. It is about Jesus. Verse 2 tells us about Paul's M.O., his modus operandi. As was his custom, that's a better way to say that, right? <laughs> As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He was there to tell them what the Messiah was really like, what the Messiah would do. What would he, he, and then the answer to the question is he would suffer and rise from the dead. Now notice here, this is the Old Testament that Paul is, is arguing from. The Bible is not a Jesus-less book until we get to the book of Matthew. <laughs> he, he's there from the beginning. Now how did Paul do this? The text doesn't tell us. Maybe, maybe we can look at Acts 13. We, we looked at that passage a few mo- weeks ago. Maybe that's one of the places. Uh, we could go to see how Paul did this. He quoted from the prophet Isaiah there. Maybe he did it from Psalm 22, Genesis 3.15. What Paul is doing here is, is called biblical theology. That is, he's, he's telling how the Bible, though it's made up of many smaller stories, actually tells one story, the story of how God is the creator and the redeemer. And every story in the Bible ultimately points forward to Jesus who he is, what he's done. I recently heard, and I wish I had learned this several weeks ago, another example of how the Bible fits together, and it relates to the book of Acts. Listen to this. This is, this is awesome when I heard this. Um, we talk, the book of Acts, what does it start with? The book of Acts starts with the ascension of Jesus into heaven. He goes into heaven, and the next thing that happened is he, he, he is there at his Father's right hand in exalted glory, and then he sends the Spirit. It's a story in the book of Acts. Well, uh, th- this pattern of going up and sending down is in the Bible before Jesus. Of uh, this going up and coming down. Two examples. When the prophet Elijah, do you remember Elijah was taken up into, into fight in the, the chariots of fire into heaven? What happened next? He went up 
And his spirit, the spirit of Elijah's power, descended onto his disciple, a man named Elisha. And Elisha went forth to serve, even outdoing, to the extent of his miracles, uh, Elijah. Going up, sending down. Jesus is the new and better Elijah who has ascended into heaven and sent the spirit for all of God's people. There's another going up and sending down in the Bible. This is a little bit different. In the book of Exodus, Moses went up onto the mountain to meet with God. What came down with Moses? What did God send down with Moses? Not the spirit, but the law. The Ten Commandments. And when Moses got down, what did he find? The people committing this heinous sin for which he strongly rebuked them. This great act of rebellion, worshiping the golden calf. He brought the law of the covenant and the people had already broken faith with God. So he, he excoriated them for their sin. And on that day, through the Levites, 3,000 people were executed for their idolatry. They were cut down with a sword. Next slide. In the beginning of Acts, Jesus goes up to heaven. He does not send down the law, does he? He sends down the Spirit. And filled with the Spirit, Peter stands and he excoriates the Jews in Jerusalem for another great act of rebellion. What have they done? They have not built the golden calf. Instead, they have crucified the Messiah. And this time, the people are cut too. Not with the sword, though. They're cut to the heart. And what happens on that day? 3,000 people are saved. They turn in repentance to Jesus. Going up, sending down. The law comes and condemns. The Spirit comes and saves. Jesus is the new and better Moses. He's ascended on high. He sent his spirit and he rescues us. The Bible is a sufficient weapon in this war because it is Christ's book. It's about his rescuing work. He's come to save all rebels against the creator God, including you. He did it by his suffering, by bearing on the cross the penalty we owe because of our sin. He died in our place. He rose again. And he renews and forgives all who turn to him by faith. That's what we mark when we take the Lord's Supper, isn't it? We partake, mark this sacrifice. Now this Christ-centeredness of Paul's teaching, I think, um, explains some of the charges that are brought against Paul in Thessalonica. So the story goes in verse 5. The Jews are jealous. They get a mob together, which appears pretty easy. And they get this mob together. They, they go to where Paul is staying, and they're going to uh, drag Paul before the city officials. Word got out, though, somehow. Somebody warned Paul and Silas, and they split. And the, the mob comes, and they grab the next best, Jason, the owner of the house, and they drag him before the city officials, and they level these charges against him. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. That's not a very specific crime. <laughs> Can't be executed for that. And Jason has welcomed them to his house. Now, here we get serious. Verse 7. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. This is high treason. They're, they're accusing Paul and Silas of teaching loyalty to Jesus above and beyond loyalty to Caesar. It reminds me a little bit of what happened to Jesus in Jerusalem. Do you remember that? What was the charge that was brought against Jesus before Pilate's court? That he's another king. He claims to be another king 
and the Jews in Jerusalem said, we have no king but Caesar. Now, this is one of those times where these city officials uh, kind of dismissed the charges. What happened is they, they made Jason post bond and, and say that, that Paul will leave the city. So you give us money as a promise that Paul's going to leave the city and we'll let you go. And that's what happened. Now, what interests me here is this claim that Jesus is king. What was Paul doing or teaching that, that made the people say that Jesus is king, that he teaches that Jesus is another king other than Caesar? Do you remember, this is where our knowledge of the Bible will help, do you remember what Paul taught in first, uh, what Paul had taught them in Thessalonica, what he told them he had taught them? If you read First and Second Thessalonians, you get an idea. What are First and Second Thessalonians about? Huh, the second coming of Jesus. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's about the second coming of Jesus. Paul had taught them this. The Lord Jesus is going to return, and he's going to assume his rightful place as master of the world, and he's going to rule over all nations and all kingdoms. He is a rival to Caesar, not quite in the way that these critics think. But there's an element of, of truth there, isn't there? We have critics today who criticize us who can't seem to get this straight either. See, they believe that Christians have every intention of using Congress or the presidency to usher in the kingdom of heaven, that we think that if we just get enough political power, we're going to establish a theocracy and uh, through law or military might. That's not true. Jesus is coming back. He's going to establish his own kingdom. Our responsibility is to preach resurrection, not revolution. He's going to come back, though. And he'll be king over all nations and kings and thrones and powers. This is Christ's book. This book tells us about that. Now, here's a third and final way that Acts 17 speaks to the sufficiency of the Bible. The Bible is true. The Bible is Christ's book. And third, the, Luke wants you to see that the Bible changes lives. The Bible changes lives. Look what happens here. In the lives of these believers, what sort of book this people, what sort of people, rather, this book produced. The passage emphasizes how the gospel message brings together all kinds of different people, right? Verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Same thing happens in verse 12. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. All these different people brought together by the message of this book. And what do all these believers do when they get together? They plot and they work and they give to support this message about Jesus. So when it comes time for Paul to run away, what happens? Verse 10, the believers are involved in this. And then in verse 14, the believers send Paul away. They they protect this message. They love this message about Jesus. They're working together for the continuance of the work of the apostles. Luke is touching on, I think, what sort of people we ought to be. Do you remember in our church covenant what we say when we read that covenant? 
We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but faithfully attend the church's meetings for worship, prayer, study, and fellowship. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrine. It's exactly what's happening in, First Thess- in Acts 17 in Thessalonians, Thessalonica, and Berea. Uh, we sustain uh, uh, through our giving and our attendance our ability to gather together and worship and take the Lord's Supper and teach and disciple one another. Uh, John MacArthur, I read an article by him this week. It was about longevity and ministry. And one of the things that he said was, let the Bible do its work. Let the Bible do its work. What does the Bible do? It makes these sort of people. When I was growing up, one of the favorite events in my home church in western New York was the appearance of the Mountain Anthem Singers. Does anybody know about the Mountain Anthem Singers? Maybe you do. The Mountain Anthem Singers is a choir that travels from uh, Mountain View Mennonite Church in Salisbury, Pennsylvania. Uh, We were Western New Yorkers. And uh, once a year, they would pull up in this bus those strange, strange creatures known as Mennonites. Uh, They would come off the bus and they would, uh, uh, with the women wearing their caps and their dresses and the men with their traditional Mennonite suits, these were very conservative Mennonites, and they would come and sing, and then we would host them for a meal or sometimes in our, in our homes at night, and we would ask them all the questions that uh, people outside of Lancaster County ask Mennonites now, the things that I make fun of them for asking. I asked them a long time ago, you know, do you believe in electricity, things like that. <laughs> so uh, the Mountain Anthem singers believe, uh, the Mountain Anthem singers sing a cappella music. And before they sing, uh, their, lead, their leader... A man whose name is Menno Beachy, their leader would uh, take a pitch pipe and he would turn around and he'd face them and he'd blow on the pitch pipe the pitch that they were supposed to sing. And then they would all sing it. Yes, they'd sing the chord. So that they got the notes so that they could sing. And after he had tuned them with his pitch pipe, they would all start singing seems to me that that's not a bad image of what's supposed to happen when we gather together on Sunday morning for the Bible because, oh, Monday through Saturday can really put you out of tune, can it? Uh, Through the the travails and trials and troubles that you have in the week. You don't come to church to sing, you come singing, a little sharp, a little flat, a little groaning. What's supposed to happen on Sunday morning is as we open the Bible together, we read it together, and we talk about it together, you hear through the Bible, and then, come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. This is the pitch pipe. It's supposed to set us in tune so that we can go forth representing Jesus to sing the beautiful harmonies of his grace. Is the Bible sufficient for that work? My answer to that question is absolutely. Let's pray, shall we? Oh Lord, we have often reason to reflect upon the wonder of this book that you have given to us. You speak. We have your word in our hands. 
That's an amazing miracle. We think about it a lot because the Bible thinks about it a lot. And Lord, we confess that we are we are easily distracted. <coughs> we can easily wander from it. We see magazine articles that promise five steps to a happier life, or we see news stories where uh, some new scientific discovery will tell you about um, what it means to be a healthier family. And Lord, we're distracted by those things. We think that, that what they have to say will be new or better than what is in this book. Lord, we confess to you our failings, our unbelief in the sufficiency and necessity and clarity and authority of your word. Lord, I'm grateful to you for the Apostle Paul and, and this model that he sets for us, reasoning, explaining, seeing, and discussing from the scriptures. Um, Lord, uh, this is one of the things that we are um, happy to pursue as a congregation. Grant us humility in that pursuit and fidelity in it. Help us to be not just hearers of the word or just readers of the word, without also being doers of the word. Work these things in us for your name's sake. Tune our hearts to sing your grace. We pray together saying,